HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from 12 to 12.45. Joined today in the studio, of course, as always, with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez. How are you doing, Nastasha? Good, Dave. How she's, you she's coming fresh off of looking at spaces for our new business, yeah? Yes. Any, anything good? Yeah, there are some great places, Dave. <laughs> really? Or are you just saying that? No, it was awesome. She's, got, she's, got, a crazy, she's got a crazy sarcastic look on her face, no, people. So warehouses. See, she thinks she can get away with like doing that without me making a comment on the radio. Warehouses? Yeah. Windows? No. Why? When Nastasha's never worked in a place with windows before. Have you ever worked in a place with windows? Yeah, and jobs that paid me. Uh, <laughs> so you want me to stop that check from coming to Nastasha? Oh, oh, hey, Drew. Drew Salmon from Momofuku Enterprises. If you're listening, please stop paying Nastasha's checks. I wasn't checks. talking about Drew. I was talking about something else. No. Oh, okay. Oh, so you admit that Drew is paying you? Yes. Okay. Uh, but Nastasha doesn't like to ro- uh, work in any sort of room uh, with windows. So if you have a... Uh, maybe a sub-basement for Nastasha to work in, anything. Um, she has one other requirement. Besides the fact that it can't have any natural light, uh, it must also be extremely loud, right? There has to be a refrigerator working in it at all times, uh, like, a, like a large one. It also has to be um, uncomfortably hot at all times. Hey, have you ever been to Patrick Martin's office? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you have to uh, have people try to store things in your office at any given moment, large things. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, that's what Nastasha likes. Anyway, call in all of your questions, cooking or uncooking related, to 718-497-2128. I didn't memorize it. I have it written down. That's 718-497-2128. All right. Today's show is sponsored by Modernist Pantry. These guys love us, right, Jack? Yeah, they, they, we love them. Yeah, nice. Anyway, today's show is sponsored by Modernist Pantry, supplying innovative ingredients for the modern cook. Do you love to experiment with new cooking techniques and ingredients but hate to overspend for pounds of supplies when only a few grams are needed per application? Nastasha hates to overspend. 
Yes. I do. Uh, Modernist Pantry has a solution. They offer a wide range of modern ingredients and packages that make sense for the home cook or enthusiast. And most cost only around five bucks, saving you time, money, and storage space. Whether you're looking for hydrocolloids, pH modifiers, or even pH modifiers, that means buffers, right? Right. Buffers. Uh, pH modifiers or even meat glue, you'll find it at Modernist Pantry. And if you need something that they don't carry, just ask. Chris Anderson and his team will be happy to source it for you with worldwide shipping. By the way, worldwide shipping. I was in Colombia, and apparently a lot of this Colombia, the country, which you know, I just got back again. So we'll talk about that maybe. Uh, these guys have trouble getting some of the stuff down there. They were telling me everything's really expensive, like meat glue's really, really expensive, gel ends really, really expensive. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe Chris ships down to Colombia. I don't know. That's Colombia with an O, by the way, not with a U. Okay, uh, where was I? Uh, with worldwide shipping, Modernist Pantry is your one-stop shop for innovative cooking ingredients. This week, Modernist Pantry is introducing its perfected guar gum. This exclusive formulation has advantages over traditional guar. First, it is pre-hydrated, which speeds the hydration while eliminating lumps. It also eliminates the need for slurries and pre-mixes it and handles it vir- with virtually no dust. Secondly, perfected guar gum does not have the taste that is typically associated with guar, which assures it will not taint the flavor of your recipes. Use perfected guar gum as a one-to-one replacement for traditional guar. Fans of cooking issues that order $25 or more before the next week's show will get a free package of perfected guar gum. Simply use the promo code CI, as in cooking issues 57, when placing your online order at modernistpantry.com. Visit, us, visit, visit modernistpantry.com today for all your modernist cooking needs. Perfected guar gum, huh? Yes. So we use a kind of guar called uh, TIC, uh, flavor-free NT, whatever it is, 4 billion, whatever, from TIC gums, a.k.a. Tick Gums. And uh, we've used this kind of guar for years. Uh, I don't know whether this perfected guar is uh, the same as the flavor-free guar, but I mean, Tic, T-I-C, is like, they're like kind of like the leaders or at least the original kind of flavor-free guar kind of a situation. Traditional guar gum, if you've ever tasted traditional guar gum, guar gum, okay, so guar gum and locust bean gum are both derived from seeds, and they're kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're fairly old, uh, you know, i.e. been around a long, long, long time uh, because basically they're seeds, they're ground seeds, uh, hydrocolloids. They're thickeners, uh, not gelling agents. And uh, locust bean gum, LBG for short, locust bean gum has always been kind of, uh, of the two, kind of the, the, the older, more handsome, sexier, and like, you know, more successful brother to guar because it like has a lot of good good properties one of which is it doesn't taste like crap traditional guar tastes it the it's beany it tastes almost like um Oh, like black-eyed pea flour or something like that. It has that flavor that it's from like a ground-up seed that, you know, is kind of uh, hard to deal with them. People use guar a lot because guar is a lot cheaper than locust bean gum. The other thing that guar um, does is uh, that you don't have to uh, heat it, you know, uh, up over 70 Celsius like you do for locust bean gum to get it hydrated. So uh, guar gum has advantages for uh, monetarily for large producers. But it always has had kind of a bad taste. It's typically used guar. You'll see guar in uh, ice creams typically. Ice creams are stabilized commercially usually with carrageenan. And they use carrageenan, which is a seaweed, because it it has synergistic reactions with milk. So you only have to use a tiny amount of it to get the milk to gel properly. Uh, And when it gels up, that stops crystals from forming, which is why they use it. They use carrageenan to stop basically uh, crystal formation. But then you have to add a second thickener to the system to stop what's called a way off where the liquid actually separates out from the weak gel that's formed by the carrageenan and that's what the locust bean or the guar gum is for and typically they use guar because it's a lot cheaper um 
the flavor-free guar is awesome. Now, the stuff that they say is prehydrated. What that means when you prehydrate a gum, gums are typically difficult to hydrate because they swell in water and form lumps. So you don't want lumps to form. And so half of using hydrocolloids, which are new age thickeners properly, is figuring out how to uh, hydrate them. So people like TIC gums and others do a thing called uh, agglomeration where they take smaller – uh, particles that hydrate fairly easily, and instead of packing them into just like a fine powder, they uh, pre-agglomerate them into kind of these very coarse-looking little. They look like miniature. They look like like it has like a pilly look, as though it's like kind of microscopic grape nuts. You've seen these before, Nastasha, mm-hmm. right? They have a weird kind of a texture to them. I typically I don't have problems hydrating because we use Vita Preps, but this could be something useful if you don't have a, a like a higher speed a higher speed mixer. I've never used prehydrated uh, guar before. I don't really like prehydrated xanthan, by the way, which some people do, which is another kind of miracle thickener. Anywho, so uh, what I use guar for guar is um, if you make a an ice cream, you can go on and look up super stretchy ice cream on uh, cookingissues.com and uh, we make a super stretchy ice cream using uh, Kelcogel uh, F which is gelan, uh, which is awesome because it forms a fluid gel and it's also flame proof but if you add guar to it it's a weird synergy that I don't you know I don't think I've never read about uh, other than on our site. Uh, it forms a stretchy ice cream similar to Selepton Derma, which is the Turkish orchid ice cream but it has an added advantage that the Turkish ice cream doesn't have is that you can light it on fire right that's mm-hmm. an advantage lighting it on fire Lighting on fire, always an advantage. Anyway, so go on Mars Pantry and get your guar. I love the word guar. I wish the band Guar would advertise for guar gum. <laughs> they should. They should. Well, they yeah. should change the name of the gum to spell it the way guar does. Is guar still around, by the way? Yeah, yeah they are. Yeah? Uh, Nastasha, you're not that kind of a person. You never went to those kind of concerts, right? No. You're not, you're not into that kind of uh, decapitation rock. No. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh... All right. So John S. writes in, uh, and he says, uh, great show. Listen every week. He's called in once before. Hi, John S. Uh, My wife and I and three-year-old son are coming to New York from Wisconsin. My wife won a Penn American Bingham Prize for her novel Stiltsville. Congratulations, wife. Uh, I looked. I looked up that novel, and uh, it had like very, very good ratings on the Amazon. I don't really read novels. Do you, you, Nastasha reads novels. I don't. I mean, this is one of my bad traits is that I don't read fiction. I basically only – I sit around constantly reading nonfiction, typically about food, occasionally about the Civil War or you know the CIA or something like that. Uh, but anyway, so they're staying in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn. Uh, but Stiltsville, by the way, weird. Still, do you know what Stiltsville is? No. It's a community in, um, in, outside of Miami in, in Biscayne Bay. These like, like dudes, for some reason, I don't know why, they built houses in the bay on stilts. They're like literally in the ocean, like in mudflats on stilts. And right now there's only seven of these houses left because, duh, they get wiped away by hurricanes because it's a freaking hurricane country down there. So there's seven left. They've been around, I think, since the 40s or something like that, 40s or 50s, and people are trying to save them anyway, weird little. And apparently the novel is about the uh, early days of Stiltsville. It's kind of a good word, though, Stiltsville. Anyway, um, so they'll be flying during the show, so they're actually in the air right now or else you'd call it in. Uh, John says, I'm a tech nerd and a foodie, although I hate the word foodie. I hate the word foodie. Don't you hate the word foodie, Nastasha? Or it doesn't bother, does it not bother you? Is that one of those things that doesn't bother you? It doesn't bother me. See, it doesn't – see, so, so basically it, if you use any word substance, it will bother one of the two of us, but typically not both, right? So don't ever show Nastasha a leaf with a disease on it, for instance, because that like foot. totally fr- – or a foot with a disease on it. That's – you know, that's – you know, the thing is people can't help it. Someday I hope, Nastasha, not because I want you to have like a horrible foot – like skin problem but just so that like it kicks you of the habit of worrying about it like if you have some sort of a horrible foot problem just for a day 
No? You hope I have it? Yeah, just for a day. That, wouldn't that cure you of getting worried about it? Anyway. So for me, for her, it's horrible. Uh, like skin does, like skin does, all this kind of things. Just can't stand it. For me, it's the word foodie, and I'll tell you why. It's because uh, it's it smacks of food fadism. It makes it seem like it's a fad as opposed to basically being a new, uh, you know, a way of, of dealing with 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 life and food. So in fact, the term originally in the eighties was was kind of like. Just like Yuppie, there was a book, you know, about foodies and it was making fun of it and, you know, basically saying like here's a bunch of people who, uh, you know, uh, I guess it just makes it into a fad, a joke, people who don't, you know, who are, have nothing better to do, a feed kind of, you know, just a bad – smacks of bad stuff, right? Yeah. Anyway. Uh, and so it was kind of taken on by people who are interested in food as kind of a badge of honor but I just think it trivializes the whole – the word foodie, I think, trivializes uh, caring about food. Anyway, that's just me. Anyway, uh, so uh, I'm a tech uh, nerd and uh, I'll say food lover instead of foodie. Uh, and wonder if you have any recommendations for sites to see in New York this week. Unfortunately, we're financially constrained uh, or else you go to Per Se or WD50 and all that. And with a three-year-old in tow – and by the way, yes, it would be difficult to go to – I guess people can go to Per Se with little kids, right? It depends on your kid. My kid, no. My two kids, they would take that restaurant apart. <laughs> Right? right. Anyway, that would be it. Um, yes. We enjoyed uh, Mario Batali's Italy. And by the way, we love Mario Batali at this because he really was uh, so good to us at the museum fundraiser last week or two weeks ago or you know eight years ago. When was it? It seems like last, last week, a week and a half, a week and a half ago. When we visited last as an example of the th- uh, type of thing we're interested in, the criteria we're looking for, something uh, f- uh, food lover interesting that we can't get back home in the backwoods of Madison, Wisconsin, something that's not terribly expensive and is kid-friendly-ish, like street food, cooking stores, restaurants, and tourist attractions. Well, listen, I don't, uh, I don't uh, go out. So uh, I'm kind of a, uh, I'm kind of bad. I'm gonna pump my friends here. Uh, Sambar is that really expensive? I don't know. You can go to Sambar at lunch and get all the duck stuff. That was good, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had a really good meal there with the, with the duck stuff. Uh, I, you know, I would do that. And the good thing about Sambar is it's kind of loud enough such that the kids aren't gonna really be a problem. Uh, you know, because no one's gonna notice because it's loud. Um, for food shopping, I mean, go to DiPaolo's on Grand Street. It's like the greatest Italian. I love that store. Go there. Uh, it's, uh, you know, you might have to wait a long time. So go at a point when there's not um, a lot of, you know, traffic or you're going to be waiting there a long time with your kid. My kids have taken that store apart, but they're very <laughs> friendly. Try to get someone in the family uh, to help you out because they, they know a lot or else Renee, uh, who's really cool over there. Like So Louis, Sal, Marie, Connie, or Renee. Anyway, go to DiPaolo's. It's a treasure here. Uh, what about uh, – what is, is Cesare's place uh, kid-friendly? No. No? No? Salamari Rossi not friendly? Mm-hmm. I mean mm. Oto's very kid-friendly. Yeah. Kids love it. Um you're like kids; they love it. I don't have no idea. I don't have any. I mean, if tourist attractions walk across the Brooklyn Bridge, that's awesome. Yeah, right. What about mm-hmm. food? Anything? Uh, we'll think about it, and we'll, after the after the break, we'll give you we'll give you some more some more stuff to do. Okay, here. Oh yeah, hell! You're going to be in Brooklyn. Come to Roberta's. Yeah, come out to Roberta's. I, I see a three year old in front of me right yeah, now. I didn't want to say anything. Oh yeah, no, but seriously, we just got reviewed uh, really well over here. There's some kids, like uh, literally looking at a table filled with kids of all ages. I see like a, I see like a zero year old, like a three year old, and a five year old with only two adults. So I'm pretty can... sure the next project at Roberta's is going to be like a McDonald's playground in the back. Oh, wow. That would be sick. For all the kids, I'm kidding, but kind of. There's a lot of kids here. 
kind of kidding. Listen, here's my here's my suggestions with uh, Roberta's. Come early. If you're going to come dinner time, lunch time, it's not a problem. If you're going to come for dinner, Jack, am I right or wrong here? Come early, otherwise you're going to be yes. waiting a long time. Yes, and it's going to be a lot louder. So, uh, what time do they have to get here, Jack? Um, I'd say seven is six thirty, seven o'clock. Six thirty or seven? That's yeah. a good time if you have a three year old. Anyway, and by the way, if you don't come to Roberta's, don't call in again. Just kidding, but I'm not. <laughs> Yeah, Nastasha pulling out, calling me a D-bag on the air. Nice, nice. Okay, two, I've been making a lot of bread using the long rest method. Initially a recipe from the New York Times, improved by Cook's Illustrated. It's definitely got the best texture with white flour, but I like to make it with half wheat flour. I'm assuming whole wheat flour. Uh, when I do this, the bread is less chewy, more cake-like, and less toothy. The texture is just not as nice. Would adding wheat gluten as an ingredient help? How much? Any other suggestions? Okay, so assuming what we're talking about here is the recipe that's actually Jim Leahy's uh, from Sullivan Street Bakery, his recipe, which is kind of the no-need uh, recipe that became popular, I guess. Mark Bittman wrote about it when? In like 2006 or 2007 or something like that. So Mark Bittman actually gets credited with this recipe because when he wrote about it in The Minimalist on The New York Times, it spread like wildfire across the internet. It was insane, crazy, uh, just like uh, your buddy Leahy is. Nastasha worked for him for a little while, right? <laughs> a week. A week, yeah, a week before he, she came to work for a different kind of a lunatic. That is me. Anyway, so uh, so, so anyway, so the, basically, the Bittman writes about this. It goes, it, it goes completely viral. Nutbag lunatics. It's everywhere. By the way, Leahy's bread here. If you've never been to New York, Sullivan Street bread and its various imitators and spawn are fantastic. Fantastic bread. Really great bread. So anywho, so he writes a uh, something. It goes nuts in two thousand and eight. Cook's Illustrated, so that's why it gets credited to the New York Times, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Even though he just came out with his book fairly recently, like a year ago, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, his book, his his basically uh, book, uh, what's editor? It's the same person who's going to be editing the, I'm going to write a book. He's going to be writing that book. And so his book called, like, it's called My Bread or something like that, or Bread My Way or My Bread Your Way. Your Bread My Way? What is it? Anyway, (laughs) so it's his book, but like, uh, Maria Gornicelli, who I'm working with, is a genius, complete genius. She writes on the cover of this thing, no work, no work, bread. No work, no need. No work. That book sold like like uh, wildfire for a bread book. It's a nice book. Anyway, so sells a, a jillion copies. This is an extremely popular technique. Cook's Illustrated in 2008 comes out with a, a book uh, – uh, sorry, comes out with an article on it where they modify it. Uh, slightly, and that was written by no relation to Nastasha Lopez, Kenji Alt Lopez, who used to be one of the main testers at uh, and recipe writers at Cooks Illustrated before he moved on to uh, to internet stardom. So, so what the hell's going on here? So the basic thing with a no need bread Leahy style is old school Leahy style is you use a very small amount of yeast and a very very high hydration, right? So you're using a lot of water. Uh, and you know per flour like he's using his recipes are insane like unhandleable insane kind of hydration levels why because he's looking for these really big kind of um, bubbles now these loaves won't really hold their shape in an oven if they're baked traditionally but he doesn't bake it traditionally because here's what he does he adds a very small amount of yeast and lets it rise for a very very with enough salt to make it taste good because that's a lot of recipes people don't add enough salt uh, and then lets it rise for a very very long time like uh, 12 14 hours or more uh, after which they he you know takes it out covers it in flour and lets it uh, you know just moves it around a little bit in in a, uh, a bunch of flour to add some sort of structure to the dough otherwise there'll be no structure and then 
um, lets it rise again in a heavily floured cloth and then throws it into a preheated uh, Dutch oven. And that does two things. It holds the shape of the bread and it traps in the steam and so it gives you a really nice crust. Now, I have not baked this way, by the way. So this is all just based on like my knowledge of talking to everyone in the universe who does it this way. This is not the way I do it. Anyway, um, everyone likes it. Uh, McGee wrote a, a, an article in the New York Times on this technique uh, where he says, yes, it makes really good bread. McGee's knock on the whole thing isn't that the bread's not good. is that the bread's all very similar. It's a very similar kind of open, coarse uh, – you know, textured like large bubble crumb, which is what people are shooting for. People like that look, as opposed to the heavily kneaded, uh, you know, less risen breads that had typically have a denser crumb. Anyway, so the technique is predicated one on his high hydration, which is going to make very big open bubbles. Two on the cooking technique, which is going to generate a nice crumb and have a you know produce a lot of steam. And three on the long rise time. And what the long rise time is doing is two things. One, people say it minimizes the taste of the actual yeast that you're adding, right? And two, it'll, uh, when it, the yeast is acting over a longer period of time, it's supposed to make more complex flavors, including acids like acetic acid and all, all sorts of different wonderful flavors and, and also modifying the uh, texture of the dough somewhat by the, long, by the long resting. In addition, you don't need to knead if you're going to let it rise for a long time because kneading is essentially the process of high hydrating the gluten uh, and providing structure for the gluten. The gluten will form its own structure, the theory goes, if you just let it rise for a long time uh, and let it develop for a long time. So the kneading becomes uh, inconsequential. And in fact, you can't knead dough with as high hydration as the stuff that Tim Leahy uh, is using. Uh, And so you have, therefore, you have no knead, no work bread. It just takes a long time. So now people, the Cook's Illustrated, Kenji Yalt was like, I don't want to wait this long for my no knead bread. So what does he do? Kenji Yalt ups the yeast content ups the hydration uh, ups the uh, sorry lowers the hydration somewhat to make a dough easier to handle needs it for like 15 seconds my 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 guess is to help the structure development early on because he's not going to rise as long right so he needs to move it around a little more help the hydration a little more and two he cheats a little bit by adding beer and uh vinegar and the beer and the vinegar uh are are there to fake the flavor of a long uh, fermentation. So it's basically let's fake the flavor of a long fermentation uh, and try to get something done uh, quicker. And so that's the Cook's Illustrated, you know, s- short need like 15, 20 seconds or you know minute need uh, bread uh, that is also it's not, but it's not nearly as high hydration. So this this is what we're talking about. That was a long explanation for what the hell we're talking about. But what if you didn't know what we're talking about? Then you wouldn't know what we're talking about. So then he's saying, uh, you know, the question here is if you're making it with wheat flour, it doesn't work as well. What's the problem? First of all, wheat flour is going to require a higher hydration. So if you're doing the Cook's Illustrated recipe, which is a lower hydration bread, you're going to need to add more hydration to get your wheat flour to act the same way. Secondly, wheat flour probably needs to develop longer. First of all, it's just never going to – whole wheat flour is just never going to get the same texture, the kind of whole wheat flour you're using. If you want a, a really nice texture with a whole wheat flour because it's, I don't know, the way it's ground. Use like chapati flour. Like chapati flour is amazing stuff. Keep it in the freezer because it always has bug problems. But like uh, Laxmi brand chapati flour, uh, I use that for pancakes and whatnot. So if you're having the problem that the bran is too coarse and it's actually uh, def- affecting the texture of your of your um, bread, move to a different kind of uh, whole wheat flour and see whether that helps you out. I've never added, I mean, I have added wheat gluten to whole wheat breads, but it's you know like decades ago. And it's, I don't remember uh, exactly what the things... I used to dope it in uh, all the time, adding wheat gluten. I mean, you add like a you know a 
percent or two of a vital weak gluten, it might help out. But I would up the hydration a little bit, and I go back to doing a longer rise. Um, is what uh, is what I would do. In fact, McGee in his article says uh, some wet doughs can still benefit from kneading, and one is whole wheat dough um, because uh, whole, he says, this is McGee quoting whole grains tend to absorb more water and produce weaker gluten networks. And I found that kneading, as the recipe directs, gives a lighter, loftier loaf. Um, all right. So, uh, that's that. Although, I will say that I do, although I haven't baked bread a lot in a long time, I do do a lot of pizza. And my, uh, my pizza for a long, I always rise my pizza overnight. Always. Like, I used to do a technique. Uh, I've moved to a no, a less work technique now. I used to make a, what's, you know, like, what do they call it? A biga, whatever. I do 100% water and, uh, I mean, 100% you know, water and flour, equal ratios. Add the yeast, let it rise two times. I let it rise up and then uh, beat and then add the extra flour and then let retard that. It's called retarding in the in the fridge basically until the next day. And the pizza's always been great. But now I've I was talking to Michael uh, sorry Matthew uh, Palombino who has Motorino Pizza also here in Brooklyn, which apparently is like some great pizza. I haven't had it. In fact, I haven't had it, but I can guarantee his pizza is good because the guys had the got the right attitude about cooking. Uh, you know, I spent some time with him, and he's uh, I mean to go. We should go there and have this pizza. Check yes. out Motorino. But uh, you know, Charlie Trotter once said. Uh, that you could review a restaurant just by looking at its floor because he's a neat freak. Isn't that crazy? He's, can't review a restaurant by looking at its floor. But I can kind of review a chef by talking with them and seeing what their attitude. And uh, Matthew Palombino, even though he's Belgian and worked for Laurent Turandel, he has the right kind of like uh, demented mental attitude to kind of get it right. Like he's quality obsessed. In fact, in fact, he has kind of a big – we already talked about this on the show. He has a big brother kind of a thing with the camera where he can look at anyone's pizza as it goes out. Even if he's in like uh, – he's in. An, I was in an airport in JFK with him and we we're flying and he looks at his iPhone and looks up the pizza – that was being produced at the restaurant at that moment calls up and just starts yelling at the person uh, who's making the pizza. Wow! Yeah, so this, like I love that. That's hardcore. Man. That guy, that guy knows what's up. So we gotta go. We gotta go check that guy out. Anyway, I'll give you one more thing on uh, pizza because you know my oven gets up to 850 degrees because I've modified it into a pizza oven, so it makes a really good pizza. Oh, and when you're gonna make pizza dough, like if you want a higher hydration, you're gonna get that softer, more Neapolitan feel, where if, if you go for a lower hydration, you're gonna get more of that kind of American feel, and I don't really think there's one's better than the other. I mean, I don't look, I like a Neapolitan-style pizza, but I don't think it's the be-all and end-all. I think whatever you want to eat at the time is the best one, right? And one last thing on pizza before we go to our first break. I'm going to give you a secret. When I was building my uh, current apartment, before I had the oven in there, uh, we used to order pizza a lot. We'd order it from a place here in New York City called Lombardi's, which is a well-known coal-fired pizza. Problem is, is the crust from Lombardi's is always soggy. It's not a high hydration, so it shouldn't be kind of floppy soggy, but it is when it comes from the thing, even though it's a good-tasting pizza. So here's the secret for you. Uh, Take a blowtorch. Turn your pizza upside down. Right on a pl- on a platter, and blowtorch the crust until it gets uh until it gets crunchy again. Now blowtorches I don't typically like because blowtorches um they if there's any fat they pick up the kind of torch taste, but there's very little fat on the bottom of a pizza, so uh, it t- tends not to pick up a torch t- torch taste out of it. So you just torch the bottom of the pizza with a blowtorch until it crunches up again. Flip it. Uh, melt the cheese. You can do it with a torch, but you know, you know, better if you don't because the cheese is fatty. But anyway, and so that's my reheating technique to get delicious, crunchy pizza. All right, uh, let's go to our first commercial break, and we'll come back. Cooking issues.
Welcome back to Cooking Issues. Calling all of your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. You gotta, you gotta be a little more mellow with that music in the back, right? If it was up to us, we'd play Steely Dan all the time, every time. Really? Oh, yeah. Is that your... That's your... That's your... Uh, that's our jam. That's your house jam? Oh, yeah. Nice. House jam. Uh, okay. So, uh, I guess we'll start the second segment with a shout-out from Adam, who we uh, met in person at the Star Chefs International Chefs Congress, not to be confused with the ICC, the International Culinary Center. What a kind of a cluster. You know what that is, that they're both named the same thing. Anywho, he says, what? It's not good. Okay. He says, hey, Dave and Nastasha, I hope you all know how much I and the rest of the silent listeners appreciate what you're doing. Cheers, Adam. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. Although, don't be silent. Call in your questions to 718 Oh my god, I forgot already. 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Okay. Uh, now, I got a question in uh, saying... Do-do-do-do. Got to get to it. Uh, you speak often about how you use your immersion circulator a lot at home. I built one, and it works great. Kudos for building one. Uh, but I found that a lot of good, quick family meals... I have not found a lot of good, quick family meals which would use it. Can you give us some examples of where you find it useful at home? I've done chicken breast, which was decent, if bland, and the fish, tilapia, I did was just plain bland and boring. Well, you're lucky if tilapia, all it is is bland and boring. I mean, tilapia is, is the fish where, uh, you know, the best thing you can say about it is that it has no flavor, right? If it, like, any flavor that it has is going to be bad, you know what I mean? So, uh, you know, I would stay away from tilapia if you can. I mean, I guess it's farmed and sustainable and nonsense. Anyway, uh, any specifics would be nice. Uh, what to add to the bag for flavorings? time uh, and temperature estimates, etc. Perhaps a recommendation for prep and freeze in the bag applications for quick weekend night meals. Okay. Um, now, it, it is true that uh, the, the circulator doesn't really excel at speed. That's not really what it's, what it's best for. Um, you know, I use it in the house uh, most often for just unattended cooking. I do, the thing I do most often in the house is steaks, right? So when I'm cooking for my family, I use a circulator for steaks all the time. And that's, you know, I think I've said it like a million times here before, but the recipe is stupidly simple. I sear it. Uh, I, with, uh, I put salt and pepper on it because I'm going to serve it, you know, pretty soon after I cook it, like within a couple of hours. So uh, if you, you don't salt it, if you're not going to cook it right away, I uh, put it, I melt butter and garlic, uh, chopped garlic and melt it in butter in a, in the nuke, pour it into the Ziploc bag, put it in the steak, seal it uh, underwater, which there's uh, instructions for on cookingissues.com. And uh, I throw it in the circulator and then let it ride for anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and a half. And then whenever I finally get the kids rounded up, uh, I flash it off in a super hot uh, pan, uh, and send it out, and it's delicious and not bland because it's been seared twice. Oh yes, and I use the butter with the garlic in it to make garlic bread. So my, this is my kids' favorite meal that I that I that I make for them. Um, other things, like for instance, if I'm going to do a party, uh, if I'm going to do a party, uh, then I'll do hamburgers in the circulator, right? Like kind of like I did for the eater piece, uh, but usually smaller uh, because it allows me to do all my work beforehand and then f- get the burgers out perfectly uh, during the, the party. But if I cook burgers for home, I typically don't do it in a circulator because it's not – it's like the workflow is, is not the same. I just make a different kind of burger. So when I make a burgers at home, I'll make a thinner burger which can be cooked more traditionally um, instead of the kind of burgers I make in a circulator. 
you know, like eggs. If I'm going to poach eggs, if I'm going to do 10 people and they're coming over, you know, and I'm going to cook a bunch of eggs, like 20, hell, I'll do it in a circulator. But, you know, if I have to cook like two or three eggs and I got to do it right now, I don't use a circulator. So it's not typically something I do for hyper quick kind of meals. Uh, if you're going to have the thing set up all the time, like on a counter in a water bath, you know, then you can kind of use it to better uh, effect. And it is really good for reheating things that are uh, in the uh, – or rethermalizing things rather that uh, are in the freezer. So you can have something in a bag and you can rethermalize it in a circulator fairly effectively. But again, it's not the quickest thing in the world. So it's really good for pre-prep stuff. Um, I'll try to think more about that. Anyway, we have a caller. Caller, you are on the air. Awesome. Hey, I am one, hoping you can help me. I am wondering how to cook a goat head. Um, it's kind of scary looking, and I don't know. Can I eat the brains? Can I? What do I do with it? All right, goat head. Very good. So I used to eat, uh, as a child, lamb's head quite a bit. Uh, I haven't done a lot with goat's head, but they're very similar. I mean, I doubt you could even tell them apart once they've you know been killed and skinned and whatnot. Um, yeah, uh, you look. The brain is delicious. I'm not going to lie. The brain's delicious. I don't tend to eat um, brains anymore since um, since uh, Mad Cow came out and like you know, all the you know all the new spongiform encephalopathies have come out because I just don't know when the next one is going to happen. You know, so I tend not to eat brain tissue anymore, even though I find it delicious. I don't know whether I'm just being overly reactive, but the problem is is that you don't know for ten years that there's been a problem, and you know what I'm saying. So I tend to stay away from brains, although there, to be clear, there have been no cases I know of of anyone ever, human, ever getting a disease from eating a, go- a goat or a lamb's brain. As far as I, as far as I know, never. I mean, cow brain, yes. No one has even really traced uh, like elk. Like elk, you know, they have a thing called chronic wasting disease out in Wyoming and so Montana. So if you those elk, uh, they can passes between each other and then they get basically a similar variant to a mad cow which is basically a variant of Jakobs Kreutzfeldt a brain eating disease and so uh Anyway, that apparently hasn't jumped human either. So, you know, uh, I just tend to – I'm not telling you to be scared. I'm just telling you that like, you know, the problem is is that after all that, I look at the brain. It's not as appetizing as it used to be. You know what I mean? Okay. Look, my favorite part of the head is like the tongue and the nasal passages. They're delicious. Uh, now, you can – a couple of ways you could do the head. Like one of the classic ways is to kind of like take a flavorful broth or stock and uh, kind of uh, poach it and simmer it in that until the meat falls off and then rip it up and make like – you can make like a testa out of it or something like that the same way that you would for – uh, same way you would for a pig's head, right? Um, but good old-fashioned way is just roast it. You know, split it in half and roast it, and then eat all uh, all of the parts out. Yeah, people like. Here's another thing, right? People like they're oh, the eyes the eyes really aren't that delicious. I just don't think they're delicious. I mean, I have no problem eating them. I just don't think that they taste that great. You know what I mean? I just, okay. Well, what about you, Nastasha? I haven't. You haven't tried it? No. I thought we had this discussion. Maybe someone else had this discussion with. But it's uh, so. Let me see. What the way we used to do? We used to. Just ro- I mean, I was a kid. It was before I was tech. You know, we would just roast the sucker in the oven, and I think they served it with a tomato sauce. I'm not sure. They call it caputzel, but it was lamb's head. Uh, and uh, delicious, like all the meat and the nasal, anything basically. Or the most effective way, and if you don't want, look, it depends on whether you want to freak out your guests. Like if your guests are like old school Italians from the north end of, uh, of Boston, then they won't be freaked out because just tell them it's a lamb's head instead of a goat head. Uh, but, you know, if, if, you're, if the people you're going to be eating with are going to be freaked out, I would pick the meat off and then, and then uh, make it into something. But all that stuff's delicious. 
the tongue, the you know, the texture is different. And the great thing about meat in the head is that you have all these very various textures. You have the textures that come out of the cheeks. You have the textures in the nasal passages. You have the textures in the in the tongue. Uh, again, if eyes, if you if you like it, and brain, if you're willing to eat it, uh, is is all good. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. I mean, do you, if you have a circulator, I'm sure you could circulate. I'm sure it'd be delicious. I've never actually done it. I've only ever done traditional cooking techniques on it. Okay, awesome. Tell, uh, write in. Tell us how it worked. I love. I love an old school. I haven't cooked a lamb's head in in many many years. Actually, that's not true. I cooked one in Italy two years ago, uh, or or three years ago. But I forget how we cooked it. I might not have cooked it. I might have just butchered it. They taught me how to. When I was in Italy last, they taught me how to split a lamb's head without a saw, just using a knife. Uh, it's too long to go into now, but the secret is basically – it's gross. But you use the eye sockets as handles to hold it so it doesn't slip around as you're, as you're smashing the knife through it and splitting it in half. Ugh. I think my, my, my head's already cut in half. So oh, very good. Skip that stuff. Very good, very good. So I won't go into it, but maybe – I'll try and remember. I'll try to go get the video of how you do it. Anyway, thanks for calling in. Thank you. Um, all right. So uh, Michael writes in with uh, a couple of questions. Uh, he enjoys our show, Nastasha. Thanks us for doing it. Uh, here's a pretty basic question I was hoping you could answer. I've always heard that you should heat your pan before adding oil. And similarly, I've always heard that you should heat uh, your oil in the pan before adding food. Are there any good reasons for this? I've often broken both of these rules and have not noticed any negative effects. Okay. So uh, what's going on here is pretty simple. Uh, most of the time – when you want to get your pan hot for searing or something like that, the, the, the idea of it is, is to get a lot of energy stored in the pan such that when you put your food on it, right, it can put a big wallop into it uh, and, and, and give it a nice good sear. Now, uh, most of those searing things, uh, you know, in, other words, in order to store enough heat into, in, the, uh, in the pan to get it to work properly, uh, you would have to heat it to a point where the oil – would completely degrade uh, and start smoking and have a lot of problems. So to get around that, you heat the pan up to a ridiculous uh, amount, and then uh, you add the um, meat, and the meat you know drops the temperature of the oil and the pan down to a thing, but you have that wallop of heat. That's why they tell you to do it. So if you're not looking to get a very quick, fast crust, then there's really not uh, necessarily a, a re- reason to do it. Similarly with the oil, if you don't want to cook for a long time, you want everything to be smoking hot, you do everything uh, at a very hot temperature. So when I'm doing low temperature cooking, I'll tend, if I'm using a cast iron pan, I'll heat the cast iron pan uh, for a long time because it stores a lot of heat, even though it doesn't deliver it necessarily as quickly. And I'll preheat the oil in the side pan up to just below its kind of smoking temperature. Then I'll dump the oil into the cast iron pan. It immediately wants to light on fire. So I throw the steak into it and sear it very quickly, and that's because I want to get a crust very, very quickly on it. Uh, So if that's not what you're looking for, there's no real reason to do it. You know what I mean? That makes sense, Sasha, or no? Okay. Uh, Also, I am curious to hear your thoughts on the Komodo or Mushi Komodo uh, or Komodo, I guess, style of grill. Uh, I'm considering purchasing one since you can do everything from high heat grilling to controlled low temperature cooking, use it as an oven, a kind of tandoor, etc. Are they worth the money in your opinion? Okay, so what we're talking about is uh, these ceramic egg-shaped grills. Uh, Was that that sneeze? Sorry. Bless you. Uh, uh, These uh, ceramic... I, I never say that. This is an honest-to-God sneeze. sneeze. It's an honest-to-God sneeze. Me to shut up when I sneeze. Look, it's a, it's a long-standing joke with me that the first time you sneeze, I say, bless you. The second time, maybe bless you. The third time, shut up, shut up with the sneezing. 
you know, go blow your nose or something, which which is a mean thing to say. And I I, I always say it as a joke because I go into sneezing fits. Like, you ever go into a sneezing Ugh, fit? Yes. Where you sneeze constantly and then like you, you like someone's trying to talk to you and you're like like you, you're trying to hold anyway whatever anyway. Uh, so I you know. She, she makes me out to be such a meanie. It's really not the case. Anyway, so ceramic uh, grills, they're kind of egg-shaped, uh, and uh, and basically you load them with coal in the bottom, and they have damper in the bottom so you can open them up, and they light fairly quickly because they're chimney-shaped, so you get good air draw through them, and people like them. So big, big, uh, what's it called? Big Green Egg is one of them. Uh, Primo Grill is another one of them. The Kamado or Komodo, whatever they are, uh, based on a Japanese style of shape, is one of them. Uh, and I've never actually used one. They are not cheap. They're like six, seven hundred bucks. But uh, their main thing, like a Tandor, which actually I do have some experience with, because like I said, we built one for the shoot we did uh, with uh, Anthony Bourdain, and I actually loved cooking in it because it takes a relatively small amount of fuel. And these have the same benefit: it takes a relatively small amount of fuel and can make a very, very high heat and can make a fairly low heat. The other great thing about the ceramics is it tends to uh, stabilize over time. So if you're going to do like a, a long cook, it, it stores heat you know, fairly well and radiates it back, giving like a nice even heat. And you have to choose. Now, the thing is it doesn't move very quickly in either direction. It took me a while to get it stabilized. But uh, the coals are going to light fairly quickly because you have this rush of air coming in and then going up like a chimney. Uh, you can use a fairly small amount because it's all concentrated. It doesn't like spread out over a huge area like a, a kind of an unenclosed grill is. It keeps most of the heat internalized into the oven and then shoots it out of the top, which is why when you're learning to put it in a tandoor, you can burn the hell out of your hands. These, ha- unlike a tandoor, have a grill in the top so that you can grill like a normal human being, although I assume you could take it out and use it like a tandoor if you wanted to. Anyway, uh, so the – so I, you know, have people seem to love them. People who use them, uh, they seem to love them. I've I've never used them. I'd like to have one, uh, and I would probably use it half as a tandoor and half as uh, some, something else. Um, so I wish I could say I had a lot of experience. Anyway, um, do you think I answered that enough there, Nastasha? I mean, I have a lot of information on it, but just not enough of my own personal personal uh, experience. But like I say, people seem to love them. I would love to have one. Anyway, I mean, I live in New York, so I can't really light. The last time I lit a charcoal uh, uh, fire in my house, uh, it almost got me divorced. So I probably won't be experimenting with that anytime soon. Okay, so uh, on the way out again, as I said, I came back from uh, Colombia. Haven't been, uh, you know, I'd never been to South America before. Now I'm like, I go there every freaking week. It seems like, it feels like it anyway. So I got back from uh, Colombia, and this time I got to do what I wanted to do before but didn't, which is make a rapid infusion, an ISI rapid infusion of fresh coca leaves, which are legal down there uh, when they're used as tea. Obviously, it's illegal to have coca paste, which they make into cocaine, and obviously cocaine is illegal, but coca leaves are. Uh, and so I did a rapid infusion of pisco and coca, and I'm here to tell you – like. It's a weird thing. Maybe someday we'll get into the, the politics of it, but it's so weird that uh, so much misery is caused by this leaf uh, that they grow down there. But the rapid infusion I made was delicious. Uh, I made that. People went crazy. And then I went outside and bought myself a plate of capybara meat. So it's capybara and coca. Maybe someday I'll blog about it if I ever get around to writing again. Cooking issues.
Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. Today we'd like to send a special thank you to the following restaurants for supporting No Goat Left Behind, Sambar and Mapesh. Show your support at these restaurants by ordering one of the menu items featuring goat. Goat is the most eaten protein in the entire world, yet in the U.S. we import most of our goat. Our dairy farms are forced to kill some male goats at birth because there's no market for them. Help make a change. Support No Goat Left Behind. The following message has been brought to you by Taste Brooklyn. Our city's finest chefs partner with farmers and local vineyards next to the Green Market for an extraordinary outdoor culinary festival. Try exquisite delicacies using locally grown seasonal delights on the plaza outside Brooklyn's Borough Hall. Top chefs and artisans will offer sumptuous fare paired with premium wines, all to empower our neediest children to get healthy. The mighty FDNY and DSNY harbor their own culinary masters in uniform. They will cook off against the pros. Sample delicious cuisine without stressing over a reservation while supporting a worthy cause. Taste Brooklyn's Field to Fork Outdoor Culinary Festival, Saturday, October 15, 2011, from 11.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Learn more and buy tickets at tastesofbrooklyn.blogspot.com. That's T-A-S-T-E-S-O-F-Brooklyn.blogspot.com.